Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, the season of Easter has come to an end. And last week we celebrated Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And now we embark on ordinary time, beginning with this Trinity Sunday. As part of Easter, we celebrated the Feast of the Ascension. And the last sermon that I preached was Revelation 4 and 5, a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, where the victorious and glorified Christ, the Lamb who had been slain, entered heaven triumphant and received the praises of the angels and the 24 elders and every creature in heaven and on earth. It's an ascension text. The lamb who was slain has begun to reign. And we all sang together the lamb's song, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Our gospel this morning gives us a different perspective of the same event. In John chapter 16, Jesus is telling his disciples that he is going away. Now I am going to him who sent me, he says. A little while and you will see me no more. It's the ascension but from the perspective of the disciples. The disciples are bewildered by this. What does he mean, they ask? Think of the story of the ascension itself from Acts chapter 1. Jesus is lifted up before them until a cloud hides him from their sight. And just like here in John 16, the disciples are confused, perplexed, staring up into heaven with their mouths gaping open. It's almost a little bit comical the way Luke describes it in Acts chapter 1. It's astonishing all by itself. They've never seen anyone rise up into the air before. But more than that, what does this mean? Jesus is gone. What happens now? If we imagine the scene as a movie, then in the Feast of the Ascension, the camera follows Jesus up into the air as he rises. And we watch him go into the clouds, into heaven, and take his place at the right hand of God the Father. But this morning, the camera stays behind and remains on the disciples and on their shocked, upturned faces. We get an idea of what the disciples were thinking and expecting earlier in Acts chapter 1, when just before Jesus ascends, the disciples ask him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's as if they're saying, okay, we can see that you did die, just like you said you would. But now you're back, right? And now with your resurrected body that can walk through walls and stuff, we can get on with the program of driving out the Romans, setting up the kingdom of Israel here on earth, like the Messiah is supposed to do. But Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father has set by his own authority. And he goes up into the air. 
Jesus has gone up into the air, up into heaven, and we're left down here with the disciples. Up there, the 24 elders, the myriads and myriads of angels, praise the lamb continuously, rejoicing in his great victory. Down here, things are less clear. Down here, sin still wreaks its havoc in the world. There are wars, diseases, fires, and floods. There's political strife, corporate greed, climate change. Our world is enthralled by idols of all kinds. Mammon, Babel, Molech. The air down here is thick with lies and half-truths. Here at Redeemer, our rector has resigned because of misconduct, and we are all left in the messy aftermath, trying to make sense of it, trying to love one another well, even as we are hurting and confused ourselves. I've always liked that part in C.S. Lewis's Silver Chair, when Aslan is talking to Jill up in Aslan's country and he's giving her her task. He's sending her down from his country, down into Narnia to do it. I give you a warning, he says. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. That's what it feels like, doesn't it? Up there in heaven, the lamb's song rings out. Down here, we seem to only catch snatches of it now and again. Up there, everything is bright and clear and makes sense. Down here, we are constantly assailed by lies, by sins and hurts, and woundings. But I'm not actually telling you the whole story. <laughs> this is a great mystery, the mystery in many ways of Trinity Sunday. Jesus has left, yes, but he is still with us. When the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time return, restore your kingdom to Israel? He said, that's not for you to know. But then what did he say? Wait for the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you shall be my witnesses. And so back to John 16. Look in verse 13. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Jesus is not leaving his disciples alone. He promises to send his spirit. And incredibly, he tells them that it's actually better for them this way. Back in verse 7, which is before our lectionary reading picks up, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the comforter will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. As you may know already, the word Trinity does not appear anywhere in the Holy Scriptures, though there are a number of places that use the 
Trinitarian formula, that is, all three persons mentioned together. So think of Matthew 28, when Jesus commands the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But the word Trinity isn't in there, nor are later Trinitarian words like three persons or homoousios, etc. Instead, the early church arrived at these words as a way to express, in human language, the ineffable mystery of God as revealed in Holy Scripture. These Christians understood that the God of the Bible was beyond their comprehension, but they also came to understand that there were ways of talking about God uh, that contradicted the Scriptures. And so they chose words that fenced off those incorrect ways of speaking about him and that properly preserved the mystery of God that Scripture shows us. And this morning we have one of the key texts from Scripture that reveals to us God's Trinitarian nature. It's really the whole upper room discourse in John, which goes for several chapters, but this is just a particularly potent section of it. It's not that this scripture makes everything about God clear to us, but it does show us a glimpse of God's true nature, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if that sounds a little abstract and esoteric to you, remember that the Trinity is not just the doctrine of who God is in his essence, who it is that we worship instead of all the idols. It's also the doctrine of how God has acted to save, his saving economy. In other words, the doctrine of the Trinity helps us see how God has acted and continues to act in the world. It's how we can make some sense of the fact that Jesus has left, but he is still with us and is still powerfully working to save us, even in our sad and sinful state, even down here, in the thick air of the world. All of Christian doctrine goes back to the Holy Trinity. And here in this moment of Jesus' discourse with his disciples in the upper room, we see a sudden picture of it. So let's spend a few minutes looking more carefully at the gospel reading and what it teaches us about the Trinity. In verse 12, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear. And then he says what we've already seen. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The spirit, it seems, will reveal new things to the disciples after Jesus has gone. And yet, Jesus himself, in his incarnation and his life, death, and resurrection, has already revealed God perfectly. Jesus is already the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus' revelation of the Father is full and complete. And yet, it says, after Jesus has gone, the Spirit will reveal still more things that the disciples as yet cannot understand. What does Jesus mean? First, I think Jesus is referring here to the New Testament scriptures themselves, through the scriptures, the Spirit would inspire the apostles to record and then reflect on the revelation of Jesus Christ in order to preserve it and then guide the disciples to understand it more fully. At this point, Jesus has not yet died or risen again or ascended into heaven. 
and the disciples have not yet received the Holy Spirit. So they can't possibly understand yet what the Spirit will soon reveal. That's how Jesus can say, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But also there's the ongoing role of the Holy Spirit to guide all Christians into the truth, which continues to this day. Even now, this morning, here at Church of the Redeemer, Jesus is at work by his Spirit, as he always is when we read the scriptures together and whenever the word of God is preached. Whenever our eyes are open to some new truth about Jesus, something we never saw before in the Holy Scriptures, that's the Spirit at work. And now the next part from verse 13, which is very important. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. The Spirit is not off on his own, gone rogue, saying whatever he wants, showing us cool new things that Jesus never bothered to say. The Spirit is sent by Jesus and by the Father, and he speaks only what he hears from them. In their speaking, as in everything else they do, the three persons of the Trinity are bound up together inseparably. And this is a great comfort in our own search for truth. If anyone tells you they've discovered some new revelation, some new truth about God, that was not already inherent in Jesus' revelation of the Father in the gospel, you can rest assured that it is not of the Spirit. Because the Spirit only speaks what he hears from the Son. He does not speak on his own. This is what John means later in John, uh, 1 John chapter 4, when he writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. The spirit is not Jesus. Jesus has departed, but the Spirit is with us. They are not the same person. And yet both Jesus and the Spirit are God, and both share in the perfect unity of God. The Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, and he always speaks what Jesus tells him to speak. That's how Jesus can be absent, but still present with us by his Spirit. Jesus says that the Spirit will glorify him. He says in verse 14, the Spirit will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Whatever the Spirit speaks, he speaks about Jesus. There is no truth anywhere beyond the truth of Jesus. There's nothing else more truthful to say. The reformer Martin Luther put it this way. He said, we cannot preach anything else but Jesus Christ and the faith. The poor Holy Spirit knows nothing else. Luther is being a little bit facetious here, but he's also exactly right. As Jesus says right here in our text today, the Spirit can only say what he hears from Jesus. The poor Holy Spirit knows nothing else. But of course, 
to know Jesus Christ is to have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What could be more worth knowing? That's exactly the point of this verse. Everything the Spirit speaks is Christ. It is the Spirit's great joy to speak of Christ and to testify to him. This is also why all of Holy Scripture points us back to Christ. If the Spirit breathes all of Holy Scripture, then all of Scripture must be about Jesus, because Jesus is all the Spirit can talk about. That's what Jesus meant on the road to Emmaus when he explained to the two disciples walking with him what was said in all the prophets, the Scriptures concerning himself, beginning with Moses and the prophets. To say that Scripture is about more than Jesus would be to say that it's about less than Jesus because Jesus is the foundation of all truth and all knowing. He is truth itself. So the Spirit always testifies about Christ. They are, after all, perfectly united. They both share equally in the divine essence. But there's one more step to take, and it's in verse 15. All that belongs to the Father is mine. The Son is also perfectly united to the Father, so that all the fullness of the Father dwells in the Son. And that means that when the Spirit testifies about the Son, he testifies about the Father too, since the Son is the exact representation of the Father. And this too is a great comfort to us. Sometimes we get the idea that the Father is a mysterious and scary figure always hiding in inaccessible light. Probably a little bit disappointed in us, maybe a little bit angry with us. But that isn't true. The Son and the Father, too, share in the same divine essence, and the Son perfectly reveals the Father to us, which means that the Father, too, is just as filled with love and compassion and mercy as the Son. As the theologian Michael Reeves puts it, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. And Jesus himself says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Our gospel today teaches us that the three persons of the Trinity are perfectly united. They each have distinct identities that distinguish them from each other but they share in the same essence or being. Each is not the others, but all three are one God. These verses also show us that God is a God who communicates himself. The Father has revealed himself to humankind in the Son, and now that the Son has gone back to the Father, the Spirit has been sent to continually testify to the Son, both in the pages of Holy Scripture and in the ongoing testimony of the Spirit in revealing the truth of Christ to us whenever and wherever God's word goes forth. Jesus has gone back to the Father, but we are not left alone. It's true that our world groans under the weight of sin. Each one of us feels its weight in many ways. Even this morning, maybe especially this morning. But we have God's own words to cling to revealed to us by the Spirit. We have, in fact, as Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us, 
been given lavishly every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul writes in that wonderful chapter that you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Amen. One of my favorite poems is by the Welsh poet Waldo Williams. It's called The Bible Forcher for the Protestant Martyrs of the Third Reich. It's about those brave martyrs, Dietrich Bonhoeffer among them, who opposed the Third Reich and who were killed as a result. Listen to how it starts. Earth is a hard text to read, but the king has put his message in our hands for us to carry, sweating, whether the trumpets of his court sound near or far. So for these men, they were the bearers of the royal writ, clinging to it through spite and hurts and woundings. Earth is a hard text to read. Yes, that's a good way to put it. A hard text to read. But the king has put his message in our hands for us to carry. Earth is a hard text to read, but we have not been left alone. The spirit guides us into all truth, even down here in the thick air, surrounded by so much evil and so many lies. Waldo Williams says, whether the trumpets of the king's court sound near or far. They do sometimes sound awfully distant, don't they? But this poem is about the martyrs in Hitler's Germany. That was an ugly time. Even so, these martyrs clung to the king's message through spite and hurts and wounding. The middle part of the poem I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it describes how thick the air had gotten in those days. The truth doesn't seem to break through very clearly in such times. But it says, still they kept their witness pure in Buchenwald, pure in the crucible of hate, penning them in. And then they died there, sunk down in the muck and filth. But, William says, arriving at the gates of heaven, their fists still clenched on what the king had written. And then this is the last verse. Earth is a hard text to read, but what we can be certain of is that the screaming mob is insubstantial mist. In the clear sky, the thundering assertions fade to nothing. There the Lamb's song is sung. And what it celebrates is the apocalypse of a glory pain lays bare. There the Lamb's song is sung. Let's keep our minds and hearts trained on that song. 
And let's cling all the more tightly in these days to the King's message put into our hands by the Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.